You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 4, verses 8 to 9. Finally, sisters and brothers, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Well, thank you so much, David. Let's pray as we turn our attention to this passage. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Loving God, you've not left us in the darkness concerning you, but you've given us your written word, your living word. You've seen fit not only to reveal yourself in history to your people, but you've also seen fit to commit your works in writing in the scriptures, your holy word, so that we might know you, and in knowing you, we might love and serve you all the days of our life. As we now come together to sit under your word, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit, that your word would come to us in demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power, and that we might Have a saving experience with the resurrected Jesus through this, your word. Meet with us in our time of need this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, there's no shortage of internet wisdom, life hacks of how to live a peaceful life. Lifehack.org, at least on my Google search, one of the top recommendations when you search how to live a peaceful life will quickly give you 30 lessons Don't be judgmental. Don't worry about the future. Don't procrastinate. Don't criticize yourself. Don't try to control everything, etc., etc. Life hacks to give you a life characterized by peace. But if we're honest, this kind of approach to finding peace often leaves us feeling empty. Not just because as soon as the life hack says don't procrastinate, you are overwhelmed by all the ways in which you are currently procrastinating at something. In all honesty, we realize as we try to live a life of more peace that our biggest fear is that we just might be the type of person who's simply taking up resources on the planet and not providing any sort of value to anyone else. We lack peace because deep down we're scared. We aren't doing what we were created to do. We fear we might just be ordinary, less than average. We fear that no one will be impressed with us And a couple years after our death, no one will remember us. There's this deep feeling deep, deep down that we have some kind of potential, some kind of calling. But this feeling is also overwhelmed by another feeling which tells us we are failing to live up to that potential and we haven't yet found it. Look, last week, the Apostle Paul gave us some wisdom on how to find peace during anxious times of your life. When you're feeling overwhelmed, how to get back on course. 
And as Paul draws his letter to a conclusion, we kind of are coming to the end of his general exhortations to the church, and he is going to give us instructions as to how to find a life of true peace, how to have the God of peace draw near and meet with us. And what we are going to find is that the way to have the God of peace draw near to us is going to be very unimpressive. It's going to be very, very ordinary. But it's in this unimpressive and ordinary actions that the God of peace will make his presence known to us. So Paul's first going to give us the type of thoughts we're to have if we're to lead a life of true peace. And then he's going to give us the type of practices we must practice if we're going to give a, lead a life of true peace. So first, Paul's going to give us the thoughts that we must have if we're going to lead a life of true peace. How must we think if we're going to have a life of true peace? Paul gives these in verse 8. And it's interesting, Paul doesn't come uh, at us with these sort of negatives like the life hacks about how to experience peace. He actually gives us positive commands. Uh, our expectation of Christianity is this sort of killjoy, stuffy religion. We'd expect Paul to give us negative commands. Don't lie. Don't be around things that are dishonorable. Stay away from the unjust. For sure, run the other way at anything that's impure. That's not how Paul works. Paul says whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what he says in verse 8. Now, this is an interesting verse, and in some ways it feels as though Paul's just kind of shooting wisdom at us with various uh, virtues coming at us from all different sides. If you're like me, you grew up in a church or maybe a, a broader Christian culture that sort of used verses like this, this idea that we're only to think about that which is pure and true as a bit of a proof text that we're to avoid sort of secular art and find our own sort of Christian true art, the Thomas Kincaid's, the Christian music, the sort of Christian subculture, which revolves around that which is true and honorable and pure and just and lovely. But what's so ironic about using a verse like this to make a theological argument that we are to exist in a Christian subculture is that Paul actually doesn't really give us a list of sort of uh, Jewish virtues. He gives us virtues that were common to the Greek society. This list of virtues is so common to Stoic philosophers. In fact, nowhere in the Bible do we find the Greek word for lovely except for right here. And yet we find that word all over the various Greek philosophers, especially Seneca in his moral essay. What's interesting is that Paul is picking up these wider Greco-Roman virtues that would have been common in a society like Philippi. These would have been taught in school and praised publicly. But he's also strategically leaving out some of the virtues, virtues self-control and prudence and courage, which would have been elevated as major virtues in the society. It's hard to know what Paul's doing. Is he telling us we are to sort of form our own Christian approach to arts and culture and dwell upon these things? Or is he telling us that we're to actually look for those areas in which we can be upstanding citizens, people who live out the best civic virtues uh, in, in the world around us? Well, let me remind you that Paul is writing to a church that's going through a hard time. We have every reason to believe they're experiencing some kind of internal pressure and turmoil, but also some external persecution and pressure. And what's the human instinct when you feel slightly pressured, when you feel like you are going through a difficult time, when you feel as though 
you know, that people are turning in on you and maybe persecuting you? What's the human instinct? Well, if COVID has told us anything, even when the government's attempts in meaning well to slow down the spread of COVID, there were times where many of us felt like our Christians unnecessarily being persecuted. And there were many arguments about that. And at the end of the day, it's understandable that we felt that way. We thought, how come the big box stores are able to be open, but a church can't gather? It felt strange. And you, wonder, you start to wonder these things. Are people against us? You start to think conspiratorial thoughts. It's a, it's a human way of thinking. But what does Paul do here? He says, don't for a second, church in Philippi, develop this us-them thinking. You might be persecuted. There might be people putting tremendous pressure on the church. You might be tempted to say they are evil and we are good. Paul is sitting in jail. He's experiencing the brunt of persecution. And he refuses to play that game. He says there, are, there is good things in any culture that we can appreciate and enjoy. Maybe one way to think about it is there's various virtues in any given culture that sort of exist like a circle. And there's various Christian virtues that the Bible promotes. And Paul is saying that there are areas in which these two virtues overlap. And where they overlap, Christians are to excel. But it seems as though Paul is taking these civic virtues of the Greco-Roman world and he's giving them a slightly Christian twist, especially in light of all that he said about how we're to think and what we're to set our mind upon. The gospel is supposed to transform us in such a way that we become citizens, not of Rome, but citizens of heaven, that our story is tied up with Jesus, the true king reigning in heaven. But Paul is saying, wherever truth is taught, don't for a second think that that truth is disconnected from this bigger story. All truth is God's truth. Learn from it. Whatever comports to reality, that you should set your mind on. But fake news and lies, deceit, half-truths, those are things that you should avoid. This is no surprise that Paul tells us to dwell upon the truth. This is a path for healing for so many. What is counseling for so many people if not sitting in a therapist's office with a therapist teaching you how to say the truth about what has happened to you in your life, to speak the truth about who you are and what has gone on in your life. But we can't fix our mind on the truth if we're unsure whether what we're dwelling on is true or not. And so I think Paul is giving us a twist on this virtue of truth. He's saying that we will find God's word to be truth. And as we are saturated in God's word, we will then see the way in which truth is embodied and exhibited in our wider culture. Paul then says, whatever is honorable, by that he means whatever is noble or, or dignified, things worthy of respect, behaviors in our world like caring for the poor, concern for the elderly, charity, marital fidelity, certain loyalties in society. There's a certain dignity with which people conduct themselves, the way in which they use the resources, the way in which people care for creation, these things. We are to think about these things. Paul then says, whatever is just, by that he means whatever is right, whatever is fair in society, where human relationships are put in a healthy balance, where they are restored and set to right, these are things you should dwell on. I can't think as our, help but think as our society wrestles with our history, with the residential schools and racial inequality, Paul would not say, whatever is just, these sorts of things, don't pretend like they're too complicated. Wherever there is just thinking. Consider, set your mind, think on these things. Whatever is pure, 
not tainted and spoiled by darkness, not morally undefiled. These things, the things that you can watch, not worrying about your kid watching over your shoulder, whatever is pure, think about these things, whatever is lovely. By this, Paul means that which is winsome or evokes friendship, evokes relationship of harmony. He's saying, think of these things, which would mean we have to be careful with the things that evoke in us constant critical spirit and gossip, things that evoke resentment and bitterness and fear. If we set our mind on these things, we will not be thinking about that which is lovely. We need to think about things that are truthful and bring out a true and sincere, sincere love and concern for others. It's interesting that when we think of Christians maturing, we think of people taking life so serious they become morally rigid and difficult to deal with. Paul says, set your mind on things that are lovely. This is a mark of someone who's maturing. Then he says, set your mind on things that are commendable, fitting for the occasion, things that all people should celebrate, stories, images, ideas. Think upon these things, the virtue of sacrifice. Think about this. This is a good warning to us. How many times do we watch movies that evoke for us a, a passion to cheer for the bad guy? Or how many times do we watch shows where we cheer for someone to leave their spouse and be liberated, find a new future? Be careful. Set your mind on those things that are commendable. And then Paul gives this catch-all at the ending. Anything that is excellent and worthy of praise. Anything that heaven celebrates, Paul says. Think of this thing, these things. So the natural response to this kind of laundry list of virtues is what do you set your mind on? It might be a very difficult exercise, but what if every 30 minutes an alarm went off on your phone and you had to journal out your most recent thoughts the thoughts that you can remember from the last 30 minutes. What would your journal tell you you are setting your mind on? Things that are excellent? Paul is saying as he sums up his discipleship instructions for this church in Philippi, think excellent thoughts. Now let me also just say at this point, as we reflect on this passage, if a path towards experiencing Christ's peace, God's peace in your life, if a path towards Christian maturity includes learning to set your mind on things which are true and good and pure, then what does that mean for us who are parents? Do we not have to teach our kids how to set their mind on those things that are worthy of praise? Rather than being the type of parents who say don't look at pornography, we are now tasked to teach our kids what beauty looks like. Rather than warning them against trashy movies, we're to show them ones that are worthy of praise. Rather than being disappointed at them for listening to vulgar music, we need to fill their ears with music that is beautiful, that is commendable. This is how discipleship works, and it's as we set our mind on these things that we begin to experience God's peace. It's not just from reading the Bible nonstop. We've got to learn to properly discern Twitter and Facebook and Netflix and the fiction aisle we got to learn to discern art museums, maybe even TikTok with our kids, and teach our kids to celebrate and see that which is true and commendable, that which is worthy of praise. How are we going to do that? How are we going to do that with new mediums coming at us nonstop? We have to have minds that have been transformed by the Word of God. So this is how we have to think if we're going to experience a life of true peace. But now let's talk about the practices Paul ends with that will lead to a life of true peace. What practices does he give? He gives them in verse 9 where he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
what Paul, Paul then says is you're to do is to practice these things and then the God of peace will be with you. Now, what is Paul saying? I must admit, I was confused for some time as I was trying to understand this final exhortation from Paul. It seems somewhat repetitive and kind of anticlimactic. Why does Paul end with giving us these practices, which you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things? And I was stuck. I couldn't for the life of me understand why Paul ends with such mundane, sort of uh, ordinary expectations on the church. Until I heard and, and, and read through a lecture and heard a sermon from actually the president of Princeton Seminary, Craig Barnes. And he really helped me get unstuck because what I saw as a problem, Paul giving such an ordinary command, Dr. Barnes saw as the glories of what Paul was promoting, exactly what Paul sees as glorious and good in our life. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, remember how you saw me wake up and get dressed. Remember how you saw me read God's word and pray. Remember how you saw me interact with those in the city. Remember how you saw me work. Remember how you saw me weep. Remember how you saw me laugh. Remember how you saw me participate in recreation with you. What you saw me doing, practice these things, and the God of peace will certainly draw near to you. Listen, Paul is saying in a world that is obsessed with being special and extraordinary, in a world that longs to be important and to make a difference, and even in the Christian community where we long to make an impact for God's kingdom, Paul is saying this, do what is ordinary and do it again and again and again. Again, I'm heavily indebted to Dr. Barnes to see this point, but this is how Paul is concluding his exhortation. What you saw me doing, the way my life was patterned after the life of Jesus, the way I tried to live out this pattern of life and death and resurrection, hope and resurrection, the way you saw me do that into, towards you and towards Philippi, you need to do that again and again and again. And you're to do that because God loves the routine. God has created a world filled with routine. God delights in the ordinary. G.K. Chesterton, the English writer and philosopher, once reflected on how God is actually more like a child than an adult in the way that you can take a child to the swing set and push a child on the swing. And as soon as you're done pushing them, what do they say? Again, again, again. Chesterton writes this. It is possible... That God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has an eternal appetite for infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. What's Chesterton's point? Chesterton's point, and I, and I saw this again and again through other commentators, is that our world depends on routines. God has established our world with routines. Big planets revolve around the sun. The moon revolves around the earth. Electrons revolve around neutrons. Every day, these routines repeat themselves over and over and over and over again. And even within our body, our heart pumps and pumps and pumps, and our liver and kidney flush out toxins uh, and push out blood over and over. Our eyelids close over our eyes thousands of times to clean and to moisten our eyes. Do you see it? God has built routines into our world because he loves the routines. 
And it's through the routines that we experience his blessings. If the earth stops spinning, if the moon stops uh, revolving around the earth, we have major problems on our hands. If our heart starts pumping, pumping, if our kidneys fail, if our eyelids won't close, we are in big trouble. Creation gives praise to God through these routines, but we receive God's blessings through these routines as well. And Paul is saying in a world that is desperate to be extraordinary, a world who thinks they will finally find peace and they will finally be free from stress, anxiety, and worry when they just are extraordinary. Paul is telling us that this is the furthest thing from finding peace with God. Get back to your routines. Take on the mind of Christ, who was, though was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of human, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. And because of this, God highly exalted him. Think about that story. And though that story was uniquely lived only once, watch for glimmers. Watch for reflections of that story in the world all around you. And look for chances. Look for your opportunity to reenact that story in your day-to-day life. Humility. Self-deferential service led to glory the same way a heart pumps and pumps and pumps. And Paul's concluding exhortation is to keep the routines in place that you saw me do. Whatever is true, honorable, just, lovely, commendable, excellent, if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then go to bed at night and wake up the next morning and do it again. And watch in these very ordinary routines routines that you take for granted, you are going to experience the blessing of God. The peace of God will come to you. The God of peace himself will draw near through the mundane and through the ordinary. The gospel we celebrate tells us that there is one who is extraordinary, one hero to the story. The way to experience God's peace is to acknowledge this, to see Jesus as the extraordinary one. And our job is to think about and to practice over and over and over again, those routine and mundane tasks that put our life into conformity with this hero, Jesus. And as we do this, as we in our bodies remember and practice Jesus' life, death, as we hope for the resurrection, as we put our faith and trust that he's the true hero of the story, the God of peace, he will indeed draw near. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.